Howdy. Before we begin today, we'd just like to send a big thank you to everyone who's taken time out of their busy schedules to drop us a line, send an email, use the contact form, or post on Facebook. And if you like the show, be sure to rate us on iTunes or go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast and support our show every month with a small donation to help us keep making the show and make it better every week. I'd rather be shoveling crap in Lubbock than change my music one bit. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Their tragic deaths have been memorialized in song by Don McLean's famous phrase, The Day the Music Died. In death they became legendary. Today we're talking about two Texas-born pioneers of rock and roll, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. But first, what's your favorite Texas town that is not pronounced how it's spelled? Well, I'm always partial to um, Manor, Texas, who on its sign is spelled Manor. M-A-N-O-R. Yeah. Manor. Uh, it's Manor. It's Manor. I, uh, so I like, there's a town way up in the panhandle of Texas, a tiny little town, and it is pronounced Miami, even though it's spelled exactly like the city in Florida. So Miami, Texas. You mean Miami, Texas. Miami. All right. You're driving north or south on I-35, and you see the signs, and you say... Welcome to Italy, Texas, just like the country shaped like a boot. But anyone who from there will tell you, particularly our friend Celesti, <laughs> it's Italy. 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 Welcome to Italy, Texas. The A is forgotten. The, the A <laughs> is Not silent. just silent, it's forgotten. <laughs> Buddy Holly was born Charles Harden Holly on September 7th, 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. He became an entertainer at age five when he won his first talent contest. By that time, his older brothers had already taught him guitar, banjo, and the steel guitar. In 1952, he teamed up with a friend from middle school and began performing at local clubs, talent shows, and on their local radio station, KDAV. Buddy continued to develop his natural talent and unique style through high school. He opened for such famous acts as Elvis Presley and Bill Haley in his comments when they came through Lubbock. Talent agents began to notice Holly and signed him to a short-lived contract with Decca Records, which produced two songs, neither of them hits. Holly recorded a third song, That'll Be the Day, which wasn't released because Decca dropped him from his contract. Holly formed a new band, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, with some friends from high school. They signed on with a subsidiary of Decca. They recorded a new version of That'll Be the Day, and by September 1957, Holly, at the tender age of 21, had his first number one hit song. That'll Be the Day has since been covered by numerous artists, including Bobby V, the Everly Brothers, Foghat, and Linda Ronstadt. It's one of the iconic sounds of its time. In the year and a half after he hit big, Holly recorded three albums and wrote and recorded over 53 singles. He had three top tens and eight top 40 songs. No other entertainer in history has been as prolific. The Beatles, for example, released 55 singles from 1964 to 1970, and the Rolling Stones released 109 singles over a 39-year period. Holly's songs read like a soundtrack for the 1950s. Words of Love, Maybe Baby, Every Day, Peggy Sue, Oh Boy, and Rave On. 
Buddy Holly and the Crickets toured the U.S. several times and were the second American rock band to tour England and were one of the first white groups to appear at the famed Apollo Theater. They appeared on American Bandstand several times and even on The Ed Sullivan Show twice. In 1958, Holly moved to New York City with his wife, Maria Elena Santiago, who he'd married earlier that year. This move split up the Crickets, who wanted to stay in Lubbock. He became fascinated with the burgeoning New York music scene and was interested in getting into acting like his friend Elvis Presley. He was at the height of his success, but was struggling to make ends meet due to his restrictive management contract. As a result, in January 1959, he went back on the road with a new band, joining the Winter Dance Party Tour as the headliner. He toured with Dion, the Belmonts, a young singer from California named Richie Valens, and a one-hit wonder from Texas named The Big Bopper. The Big Bopper was born Giles Perry Richardson Jr. on October 24, 1930, in Sabine Pass, Texas. He grew up in the Beaumont area, the son of an oil worker. He graduated high school in 1947 and entered Lamar State College of Technology. Soon after starting college, he began working as a DJ at a local radio station. He liked it so much that he dropped out of school to pursue a full-time career behind the stacks of wax. While working as a DJ, Richardson created the personality The Big Bopper and began writing songs in his free time. Some of his songs became hits performed by other artists. Later, Running Bear by Johnny Preston and White Lightning by George Jones both would become big hits that topped the charts. But Richardson didn't just write songs for others, he recorded some himself. His second single, Chantilly Lace, became a massive hit, rising to number six on the pop charts and spending 22 weeks on the national top 40. It was the third most played song of 1958. It was the success of Chantilly Lace that led the Big Bopper to take a leave of absence from his job as a disc jockey to join the Winter Dance Party Tour through the frosty Midwest. Traveling in poorly maintained tour buses that lacked adequate heating, the group of musicians would stop in a town, perform at a local dance hall, and then pile back onto the buses to ride all night to the next town. The 11th stop on the tour was the famous Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. By that time, some of the band members were suffering from the flu, hadn't had a bath, or washed their clothes in days. They were all exhausted. One band member, Holly's drummer Carl Bunch, suffered from frostbite and had to be hospitalized. It was at this point that Buddy had had enough. He decided to charter a plane to the next town so he could get some sleep, wash everyone's clothes, and take a bath. There was room for two more passengers on the small plane. He asked his guitarist, Tommy Alsup, and his bass player, another young Texan, named Waylon Jennings, to come along. As the night wore on and word got around about Holly's plane, others began trying to hitch a ride. Despite a fear of flying, Richie Valens cajoled Tommy Alsup into giving up his seat. Alsup was initially reluctant, but he finally relented and agreed to flip a coin to see who'd get the seat, him or Richie. Richie won the toss. Meanwhile, the big bopper who had the flu asked Waylon Jennings if he'd give up his seat so the bopper could get some rest. Waylon agreed. The rest of the story is now part of the mythology of rock and roll. As the tour began packing up and loading their buses, Buddy, Richie, and the bopper headed to the airport to board their plane. It was snowing hard and the pilot wasn't instrument certified. Just six miles from the airport, likely disoriented from the darkness and the driving snow, the pilot flew into a cornfield at 170 miles per hour. The plane was flying at a downward angle, banking hard to the right at the moment of impact. It hit so hard that it cartwheeled for 570 feet, almost the length of two football fields. All four men died instantly. An autopsy of the bopper's body, performed many years later at the request of his son, who had never met his father, 
revealed that every bone in his body had been broken multiple times. It would be the next morning before the crash site was located and the bodies recovered. The owner of the surf ballroom had the gruesome task of identification. The others had to continue on without their headliner, with Waylon Jennings singing lead and Tommy Alsop playing guitar. Both men went on to enjoy long music careers, but the tragedy of that night lingered in their memories like a bad dream. Jennings was especially affected by their deaths. When he gave up his seat to the Big Bopper, Holly, who liked to kid around with him, said he hoped Waylon froze to death on the bus. Waylon flippantly responded, I hope you die on that plane. Those words, spoken so innocently, haunted him his entire life. The impact of this day the music died was instantaneous, profound, and tragic all on its own, but the legacy of this event and the lives of its victims shined bright. That year, songwriter Tommy D. wrote the song Three Stars about the tragedy, and it later became a hit for Holly's friend Eddie Cochran. In 1971, folk singer Don McLean had a far bigger hit with his interpretation of the tragedy, American Pie, which managed to sum up American popular culture in the 1950s and 60s that centered around that tragic day. The legacy of these individuals is clear. While the Big Bopper was a bit of a novelty act who'd made it big with his single hit, Valens was one of the first Hispanic artists to break through to the mainstream with his songs La Bamba and Donna. He left behind a modest amount of recorded material that continued to be released after his death. Richie's greatest notoriety came 30 years after he died when Texan Lou Diamond Phillips starred in a movie about his life. 1978 gave us the Buddy Holly story, starring Texan actor Gary Busey in an Oscar-nominated performance. Holly also left a huge backlog of unreleased songs, which continued to generate hits for some time after his death. Of the three, of course, Buddy Holly had the most influence on music and American culture. The number of innovations that he introduced to rock and roll is astounding. He set the template for the composition of a rock band, lead and rhythm guitar, bass player, and drummer. He was one of the first rock stars to use his own band for both recording and performing. Previously, most musicians hired locals to play in each town where they performed and used studio musicians to record albums. He also released songs both under his own name and through the crickets, effectively doubling his airplay on the radio. He was one of the first rock stars to write, arrange, and perform his own songs. He was also one of the first to use a Fender Stratocaster, inspiring hundreds of musicians to do the same. He was one of the first to demand artistic control over his music and to succeed on talent alone, proving that you didn't have to be a well-managed pretty boy to make it in rock and roll. He was only the second to use string instrumental arrangements with his music and the first to allow experimentation such as drumming on a cardboard box or on the drummer's leg to get a different sound. Thanks to his horrible eyesight, Holly popularized wearing glasses while performing. This inspired both John Lennon, who couldn't see without them, and Elton John, who would ruin his eyesight by emulating Holly in wearing theirs on stage. Elvis Costello based his entire image on Buddy Holly. Perhaps his biggest fans were Lennon and his three friends from Liverpool, who modeled their band name, as well as their early image, on Buddy Holly and the Crickets. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, the Birds, Eric Clapton, Pete Townshend, and even Bruce Springsteen all freely admit that they began to play only after Buddy Holly had taught them how. John Lennon told Jerry J.I. Allison, drummer for the Crickets and Holly's best friend, quote, There would not even have been a Beatles had it not been for the Crickets. So let's just start the discussion by talking about the Buddy Holly story, which <laughs> for... Um, at least one of us, was their first exposure to Buddy Holly. Yeah, I was like four or five years old, and we went and saw it at a theater, in, I think in San Angelo, Texas. Uh, so 
it was starred Gary Busey, and it, it was really a great movie. I mean, it was a, it's it was, an incredible performance. Yeah, and a, and a, yeah, an amazing performance. He's really skinny. Uh, he he's just at the top of his game, but he just captures Buddy Holly and like the the image and the the mystique of Buddy Holly. Well, there's there's a there's two things I think about with that movie is and there's I remember seeing it and there's the scene where he. He stands up for his artistic integrity. He's like, I'd rather be shoveling crap in Lubbock than change my music one bit. Right. But then many years later, uh, Dana, famous comedian Dana Gould said, like, you see that scene in the movie, and he says that, but what he really probably said was like, sure, no problem. Bring on the money. Let, what are we doing now? Yeah. I think I think that that is probably the first exposure to the idea of, of what an icon uh-huh. he was in that that story. I, re- I remember being very young watching that and being like, man, Buddy Holly's just the coolest guy. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that was maybe the first visual representation of Buddy Holly I had. But as a kid, um, we had these things called record players. <laughs> And uh, we would put records on them, and they'd spin, and there's a needle, and it makes noise. Mm-hmm. But my dad had a few 45s from that he had when he was younger, and um, we'd put them on our little Fisher-Price record player and listen to him. And one of them was a 45 single of Peggy Sue. And I would listen to that thing over and over and over. I loved that song. Mm-hmm. Um, loved the way my dad sang it. I loved, loved listening to it myself. The B side of that was Every Day. Mm-hmm. Another which is my favorite buddy Holly. I would say that's which technically right up there. those are both like A sides. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. For anybody else, they're A sides. Yeah. But um, you know, I really love that record. I would play it over and over and over. And, you know, some kids or a lot of us when we were kids, we kind of fetishize some possessions of our fathers. You know, well, you know, the stuff that he takes out of his pocket and puts on the nightstand or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a pocket knife or he's got a wallet or something. For me, one of those things was this 45 that mm-hmm. used to be my dad's because it was one of the first things I remember being, you know, it's like, hey, my dad had this when he was a kid, you know, not much older than I am. That's, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, and it was great. And I remember one night we were sitting there in the living room doing something. I don't know. I was carrying around that record and it set it down on the ground or something. And I dropped down on my knees right on the record and snapped oh. it right in half. Oh. So. Yeah, it was very traumatizing for me. <laughs> you know, these songs just are, it, it's so incredible, like the volume of music. I mean, it's you, it's such an intense, like they're all, they're just, they're great songs. Like you don't hear like, well, that one's okay. You know, there's some albums you have yeah. and you're like, nah. but when you, even you look at just the catalog of his music, you're like, wow, these are all really great songs. The, to yeah, me, and, they're the soundtrack of the late 1950s. I mean, they're, they're really the soundtrack of the 1950s. If you turn on a movie and it's there's a scene set in the 1950s, I can promise you, if it's not Elvis Presley playing in the soundtrack, it is, uh, it's Every Day or it's Peggy Sue or it's one of these songs or Rave On, like, those are like it's just those are the two sounds like Elvis Presley for like the earlier part of the 50s and then Buddy Holly yeah and what's amazing I mean you don't really realize until you know we talked about it how it's he was so prolific in such a short amount of time I mean from the his first hit single with uh that'll be the day to his death it only spans about 17 months you know and I thought he started in their mid 50s I didn't realize like it was only 18 months yeah, the, it's it like prolific is is the word. The other thing that's really kind of neat about his music is, you know, there's some artists you listen to their work and you say, well, 
it's all very derivative. It all sounds very similar. Like this song sounds like this song sounds like this song because it's the same band, it's the same format, it's the same themes. And, you know, if you listen to a lot of the Buddy Holly stuff, you go, this guy's got some range. He's yeah. Well, not, I mean, not, not just not just in the topics, but in the arrangements, in the yeah, sounds, well, I mean, and, and how he's putting things together. Every day has got a glockenspiel in it, of all things, I think. You know, it's like it's got that, it's not what you would normally associate with a rock and roll song, but... You know, there it is. Well, and that's and that's why, like I said, that's the the range and the beauty of it is, is that it's like, okay, well, he's you're going to be taken on a musical journey when you listen to this, and every song has its own tempo, time, and space. And I think there's something to be said for really great songwriters mm-hmm. who create unique experiences in each song. Like when they really they're they're really encapsulating a mood, a feel, and they're bringing everything and they put it into one nice little bow. You know, put a bow on that package and. Every day is is one thing, Ravon is another thing, and that'll be the day. Those, you know, they're three very different songs, mm-hmm. but they're all the same guy. And, and he's ex- and words of love isn't is words a of totally love difference. But they're they're all like really beautiful, perfect two minute pop songs, like just perfectly encapsulated. His voice is crystal clear. Um, the sound is incredible. And now, what's interesting is that I think there's there's that may be wrong, but there's very little live material of his recorded that's available. But yeah, most know. of the reports that I've read is like, he was a monster on the stage. Like he was a tr- amazing live performance. Well, I, Gary Busey made me believe that. Well, yeah. say, like, we have hours of footage of Gary Busey doing <laughs> well, all kinds the of The interesting things. thing that I, that I, so I was reading some stuff in addition to, you know, getting ready for this podcast. And um, Bob Dylan was at, show number nine of the winter party tour when it came through Minnesota. He saw him two days before he died. He was 17 years old. Keith Richards saw him on tour in England. So uh, Bruce Springsteen said every night he listens to Buddy Holly just to set his mind right. So like the influence of this, of this guy, this 18 month career is profound and deep. I mean, Elvis Costello, you look at Elvis Costello and he looks I mean, he looks a lot like Buddy Holly anyway, but his style in the 1980s when he was really popular, and even today, is definitely Buddy Holly just walking. You know, there's this mythos that that Don McLean captured, this idea of Mm -hmm. the day the music died, that there was really deep talent on this plane, and 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 when that happened, it's it's a high watermark in American music that sort of fades away, and then there's a a glut before this new wave of, of performers comes along to elevate popular mm-hmm. music. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so tragic about that event is that both Buddy Holly and Richie Valens were at the peak. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we don't even know if they were at their peak. But, they but were, Richie they were Valens still, was, was just starting. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were just taking off. It was but, like, and Richie Valens was breaking barriers with being yeah. one of the oh. very first Hispanic pop stars. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's like, you know, it's like when a rocket blows up, leaving the launch pad. This was, this was a time period where Elvis, Elvis's career was sort of fa- fallow because he was in the army. It was right after, uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis's situation with his marriage blew up. So like 1960 was a real low time for rock and roll until really the Beatles came along to kind of reinvent rock and roll couple of years later there was a there was a kind of a downtime for rock music and then the other thing though and maybe this is a better point is that the songs of buddy holly and of big bopper and richie valens that is an innocent time period for rock and roll 
there is the one thing about Buddy Holly's music is there's not a danger in his music. Well, it's I think the word here's the thing. I think you're you're hitting on is it's timeless. Yeah, it's timeless and pure. It's very pure, yeah. and it's about the it's about very raw, simple emotions and expressing them. As you enter into the '60s, something begins is happening in America. There's something happening here. It's very no, I'm not going to do Buffalo Springfield. But what you what what you sort of see is, is that music begins to transform and change, and right up until 1966, you have this high water mark of the Motown sound. You have this kind of the nadir of, of, you know, the Beatles and the British invasion, and you're right on the cusp of psychedelia, but you're also dealing with all the politics of what's happening in America. And this is, whether or not that plane had gone down, their music was going to evolve and change as they entered the 60s. However, they would have been relevant artists in that time. Mm -hmm. And their legacy proved even beyond that because of the how their music went on and lasted. And I think it's interesting they talk about, you know, Big Bopper wrote songs that White Lightning's a great song. I don't want to, like, if that's all that you did in your life was, I wrote the song White Lightning, I'd be like, that's a life well lived. Put that right. on the if tombstone done, and you're if done. If he'd done Chantilly Lace and then not had another hit, but White Lightning. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, a, again, it's White a case. White Lightning. I love that song. Yeah. <laughs> again, it's a case of where we don't really know where yeah. the Big Bopper's career would have gone. Yeah, it was a big hit. It was kind of this novelty song, but that was just the but beginning for him. He was, he was, he was, he was a, a little bit older evolving. than the rest of them, too. He was, he was a, couple, a good decade older. But I think maybe this tragedy introduced, it introduced a tragedy into rock and roll, a certain sadness and melancholy and that... So Buddy Holly's music and the, the innovations that he made it made a foundation for rock and roll that these other artists were able to build on and that sadness at him not being there and that this event that happened to them that they took personally helped transform and uh, mature rock and roll. Well, it was a, cat- a, it's a catalyst into yeah. what the next evolution of right. rock and roll becomes. But, you know, let's bring it back to Texas. So we have Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper are both from Texas. I like the fact that almost everyone who's portrayed these men in movies are from Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this kind of this, you know, look, they're, they're our guys and we get to own them. Mm-hmm. And Buddy Holly is still Lubbock's favorite son. I mean, he is, there's memorials to him. There's museums. There's the cricket. There's the crickets have a street, and Buddy Holly has a street named after him. There's parks and schools. So still he is that double airplay. Yeah, double airplay. That was smart. Um, he, it's he is a great success story from Lubbock, and just that he went so high, and yeah, it is very much a burned out. You know, the light that burns twice as twice as bright burns half as long. So. Well, I think that you would be well served once you've finished listening to the complete back catalog of Come and Take It. Mm-hmm. on your podcast to get yourself, you know, heck, just go like the greatest hits if you want. Greatest hits of Buddy Holly, listen to the Big Bopper, get a Spotify account. If you have Amazon Prime, there is a 50 Years of Buddy Holly, and it's got like 30 songs on it, all of his big hits, so you can listen to that for free. If, if you, have you have Amazon, Amazon Prime. Prime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank a new writer contributing to the show today, Paul Schmel. 
for helping us to research and write this episode. Welcome aboard, Paul. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, because that's what helps us to find new listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast to become a member of the Come and Take It Rangers. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway.